Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. ReopenAmericaResourceCenter.com. Are you struggling personally or professionally because of the coronavirus shutdown? Ready to grow your business and serve more customers and clients? Finally, there's a trustworthy website with resources, relief options, grants, support, and much more for small businesses, nonprofits, and individuals. One location with all the information. It's time to get back to work, life, and reopen America. Visit reopenamericaresourcecenter.com today. The ultimate resource platform to help you in every way. This is Everything Home, the transformational show about life, laughter, and the pursuit of happiness delivered by good people doing good business and good things. Let's take the word freedom. Wouldn't it be great to have more professional freedom, personal freedom, and how about financial freedom? Every week, Michelle Swinnick, the queen of quality content, interviews experts, entrepreneurs, professionals, and purpose-driven people to share their stories, their passions, and provide real-life, tangible takeaways. Get ready to be entertained, yet learn some incredible information. This is Everything Home, and this is Michelle Swinnick. Well, this is part two of our topic from earlier this week, success tips for business and life from family business queen, Mitzi Perdue. Before we discuss today's topic, I wanted to tell you about our new website, reopenamericaresourcecenter.com. It's the ultimate resource platform to help you personally and professionally navigate through our new world, get back to work, grow your business, improve your life, and reopen America. It has resources, relief options, grants, and support for small businesses, nonprofits, and individuals. Every single person can benefit from something on this website. Job listings, online tools, products, services, offers, information, facts, data, expert advice, business organizations, networking groups, virtual concerts and events, and so much more. Mitzi Perdue's new book, How to Be Up in Down Times, which she co-authored with Mark Victor Hansen, is available for purchase on our author's page, and 2% of the total purchase price is donated to nonprofits supporting vets, pets, and kids. Now, there's one trustworthy location with all the information, giving you the opportunity to have more personal, professional, and financial freedom. Isn't that what life's all about? ReopenAmericaResourceCenter.com. Please check it out. Tell your friends so more people, small businesses, and nonprofits can be helped and we can get this amazing country back on track. And now on with the show. This woman's CV, resume, if you must, there's so many things on it that are so diverse that we only got through a portion of it and I thought it was important to complete the rest of the story. Part one, let's go listen to that one and we'll catch you up to speed. We've talked and celebrated her dad and the Sheraton Hotels. We talked about in detail her life with Frank Purdue, which is Purdue Chicken, Purdue Farms. So now we're going to talk about Mitzi Purdue, the entrepreneur, the speaker, the family business expert, and all of her personal things, especially you know, starting her own company, which is still active. And as I mentioned in the intro of the other show, it's the Series Farms. Series Farms, she started this in 1974, and now it's one of the larger producers of wine grapes in California, which Kendall Jackson, Mondavi, Toasted Head, those are her grapes. So you've drank her wine and you don't even, you don't even know. You've been living with this woman for years. You have no idea. So briefly, I love that thought. I love that thought. <laughs> yeah, it's like you've been having happy hour with Mitzi for years and you didn't even know it. I can't even tell you how much I enjoyed that thought. Thank you, everybody. Enjoy our wines. Except there is, we produce the grapes and sell them to the wineries. Yeah, but still counts. It's the grape is the wine. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's you. So it's 
you and and they're happy are there you go so for and you know that voice is is my guest missy purdue entrepreneur author speaker and as i coined the phrase and i have christened her as the queen of the family business again listen to the, the first episode which is part one quick background her father was the president and co-founder of the sheraton hotel chain and her husband frank purdue Purdue chicken. That's all I got to say. So now it's time to talk about Mitzi and her personal accomplishments. So Mitzi, you want to start with the series farms and talk about, I mean, you were hotel and then all of a sudden eh, I'm going to do grapes. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's like you go grapes, chicken, hotels, but (laughs) go ahead. Tell us, tell us where all that started from. Okay. Well, I absolutely love joke that, uh, when people ask me how I got into farming and it was rice farming. And my joke is, doesn't every little girl who grows up in Boston dream of being a rice farmer? (laughs) And (laughs) since I'm pretty sure the answer in general is no. So how did I get into rice growing from being a Boston debutante? And here's how it happened. My father died unexpectedly and young at age 70. And we're talking 1967 at this point. And for family businesses today, what happened to us probably wouldn't happen. But back in the late 1960s, there wasn't the focus on looking out for succession, looking out for what's going to happen to a company when the patriarch passes away. And in our case, it did end up with us selling the whole, I think there were 400 hotels then. What I inherited Two-thirds of it was in trust, a trust from my mother, a trust from my father, and then money that I could spend any way that I wanted. And I have five siblings. Each of us had pretty much the same setup. And in theory, you know, I could have spent it on racehorses or yachts or private jets or whatever, but we had been brought up to be frugal and that it was really important to get our sense of identity, not from what we spent, but how we served. So... My brothers and sisters and I, none of us went the, you know, the racehorses and private yachts route. All of us, in one way or another, I think are about serving. And in my case, I suddenly have a third of my inheritance. It's in a form that I could spend in any way I wanted. But having been brought up with the idea of stewardship, I thought I could put it in the stock market and have some big name investor look out for it for me. But I thought it would be much, 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 much more interesting to invest it in agricultural land. And I chose agricultural land because at that moment, I was living in Davis, California, which I love dearly. And it's an agricultural area, and it's associated with one of the foremost agricultural colleges maybe in the world. And I thought if I could invest in agricultural land... Yeah, first of all, it would be good stewardship because land isn't going to go away. But second, that I could use that land, I could make it available for research for the nearby university. So the thing appealed to me a whole lot, but I didn't want to jump into it right away. I felt, yeah, with a sense of stewardship that I should prepare. And here's what I did. I spent four years taking classes in agricultural accounting agronomy, rural appraisal. I'd attend lectures, conferences, and I made it my business to make friends with people who were in agriculture, and I'd join agricultural associations. So that by the end of four years, I knew one heck of a lot more than I knew at the beginning. But that wasn't enough. I mean, that was kind of academic knowledge. I then began investigating various properties that were for sale. And If anybody's thinking of getting into agricultural land, I have one great big mammoth piece of advice for you. That's the following. Agricultural land seldom changes hands unless one of two things. Maybe there's a divorce or a death, but more likely the property's a lemon and they want to get rid of it. And so I wanted to make sure that I wasn't buying lemons. And that meant for each property that I was considering buying, I had a checklist, and I've I've lost count of how many check boxes there were, but it was between 35 and 40. And I'd visit the land with the local county extension person. I'd visit the land with 
maybe an agronomy professor. I'd talk with the county assessors. I felt I could almost write a doctoral dissertation on any property that I looked into. And the first 39 all had some flaw that made me think, I buy this thing, I'm going to lose money. Finally, the 40th one, it had everything going for it, and I bought it. Well, it did well enough that with the money from that, I bought more farms. And then with that money, I bought still more farms. And then there came a wonderful time when I had the chance to sell the land that I had. It was prime for development because it was between the city of Sacramento and the Sacramento airport. But by divine good fortune for me, it had two highly endangered species on it, which meant Mm. that nature preserves wanted the land. And there were very big, wealthy businesses who wanted credits for preserving land with endangered species on it. So I got to sell the land at development prices and having it in perpetuity left pretty much in the wild. There was an amazing profit that went along with this. And I immediately put it into, at that point, I was getting more and more fascinated by wine grapes. So I put it into vineyard land and that did well enough so that I bought more and more. And today, let's see, that began in in 1974. Well, it, it has done well. And I think a lot of it has to do with being bought right. But second, I'm so lucky I have a son who's a Wharton graduate who manages it. So I'm out of it completely, but it's still in the family and, and I love the whole business dearly. That's how I got into agricultural land. But that led to other things. Like I got hugely interested in women's agricultural politics. I had joined California Women for Agriculture. I loved what they were doing. It was an organization. I've heard some people refer to it as a trade organization, but the overall umbrella organization today has 40,000 women in it. And we advocate for agriculture. And I love the people I met. I love the chance of women supporting women. And I, I ran for a local office in it and eventually became national president of American Agriwomen. And, oh, wow. And that sort of created in me something that hadn't existed before, and that is the most intense desire to help women. And so my term as president, it was the biggest feature of it was creating courses that women could have that would teach them to be better advocates, better speakers, better lobbyists, knowing more how the political system worked. And it was just enormously satisfying to see women who were, how about transformed, like a woman who might be very shy and have no, you know, she's got all sorts of potential, but she doesn't know kind of the levers to press to get ahead and and the skills that she needs. And American Agri-Women, while under my term, we put a huge effort in helping women discover their potential and learn the tools that they needed to excel. And it was, you know, that left me with an unending love of helping women. And by the way, I'm not against men. I love men equally. But I think women can really use a whole lot of support. And that's what we tried to do. But that was a spinoff from my interest in agriculture. But then another thing happened to me in my career. And yeah, I wonder if this might be helpful to other people who were struggling with what I was struggling with, which was, I was amazingly shy at this point in my life. It was like it would be difficult for me to enter a room full of strangers. I was so shy that it was actually hard for me to make phone calls to people I didn't know because I wasn't sure that I'd know what to say. And it occurred to me that, well, here's what pushed me from becoming insufferably shy to being the monster that was let loose. And and here's what (laughs) happened. There was legislation that would have put me as a rice grower out of business. It was based on the fact that when you burn rice, which was part of rice culture back in the 70s, you burn it to to get rid of a virus that that if if the virus infects your field, you won't have a crop the next year. It was called stem rot. And burning it, you know, it it makes asthma worse. It, It decreases vision on roads. It's just, you know, a really bad thing. 
And I'm totally sympathetic with the urban public who wanted rice culture to, to cease. But I also knew our side of the story, which is that we had taxed ourselves a million dollars to learn how to put our own house in order. And I wrote an article on this telling our side of it. And it had a huge impact. It became required reading for the whole California state legislature. And then it, it would get discussed on talk shows. And that led me to being invited to be a guest on the local farm show. But for somebody too shy to use the telephone, how on earth was I going to manage being on television? Well, that coincided with I had joined the Business and Professional Women's Club. They had a public speaking course and a self-confidence course. And good Lord, did it help me because I accepted the invitation to be on the TV show. And I got the biggest shock of perhaps my entire life. And that is when you're on television, at least this was true back then. I, I can't swear if it's true today. But if you're going live, there will be a little red light to the side of the camera. And it's called the tally light. And when that comes on, it means that you're going out live and that maybe tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are watching you. And I was expecting to die of fright, but here comes the biggest surprise. I discovered when the little tally light came on that I felt I can do this. I believe in what I'm saying. I want to share it with people. I don't really care how I'm coming across. All I care is that I get to show this to the people that I care about, namely the voters. And the words just flowed. I, I discovered that there was this other side of me that, that was comfortable in front of an audience. And at the end of it, the station manager had happened to catch the show. And he said, you're a natural for television. Would you like a job? OMG, would I like a job? <laughs> so I, I went from too shy to use the telephone to being a television hostess. So you did the opposite of Cindy Brady, where you, did, you didn't freeze. And the, and the moral of the story is people don't freeze and you can get a job on television. <laughs> so don't be a Cindy, be a Mitzi. <laughs> well, okay, then... then since you picked up on that, let me add a little added part to this. And this is a great big plug for the Business and Professional Women's Association. I think they call it, it was clubs then, and I think it's association now. But when I got this invitation to be on a TV show, I thought I was going to die. I mean, it was just complete unleashed terror. But I was taking this individual development course and I went up to the teacher and I said, the scariest thing in the world has happened to me. I've accepted to be on a TV show and I don't know if I can do it. And she did the most wonderful thing that I recommend to anybody else who's in a situation where they're scared out of their minds and they have supportive friends. Robbie Robinson, the teacher, said, we're going to stop the class right now and we're going to have a buck up Mitzi session. And she got, I think there might have been 15 people in the class, she got them to form a circle around me, each holding hands, and then she directed them that each one was to say something supportive and encouraging, like, we know we, you can do it. You have it in you. We believe in you. You're going to do great. And at, at the end of the Buck Up Mitzi session, all the little voices in my head that were saying, no, you can't do this. You're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die. How about they were overridden by my friends saying that they believed in me and that I could do it. And I personally think the reason I didn't freeze was because there were all these voices in my head resonating from what I had heard my classmates say about, you know, do it for us. We believe in you. You can do it. You have it in you. And, you know, the whole ball of wax. It changed my attitude. It changed my attitude from I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die to I can do this. And so... I'm such a believer in people encouraging each other. The story is pretty meaningful, especially now in anything that anybody's doing. You know, it's, it's, it's almost like when you hear all self-help, the leaders, the people that are doing all of these webinars and masterminds and classes and the books and all that and how personal improvement, personal development, and you constantly hear them seeing how easy things can be and you know a lot of people don't necessarily have the success with it and they try another or they get frustrated they're wondering why they're not succeeding 
But when you hear stories like that, that people can relate to, it's just a great reminder of how simple that little shift can be. And then what a big difference it can make. You know, it's, no, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that I take from that story is that words of encouragement can be unbelievably profoundly important. Yeah, so I, in my own life, out of gratitude for that experience, I try to be encouraging. I mean, I want to be honest. I'm not going to, I don't want to lie to somebody, but if, if I hear something good, I really want to give that person, I mean, I'm speaking metaphorically, but my arms around them telling them, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And it makes a big difference in people's lives because, as you and I were talking before the show, sometimes you just need to hear that and it changes everything. Or even if you did a great job, it's nice to have someone say, good job, I really enjoyed it, or you you're, you did excellent. Because sometimes you, know, you work so hard in whatever it is that you're doing, then it's just nice to have that recognition in addition to being encouraged. But it's just nice to have that recognition. I think that's why people strive for likes and comments on social media, which you shouldn't need that in order to do what you're doing, right? You shouldn't need to do it. Yeah, I know we are. We, we definitely are. You know, you want to take that extra couple minutes and give that encouragement or even say that somebody did a great job or you were impressed. I mean, those little things go a long way. And then, you know, it's all part of the big picture. You always having gratitude. So when you, when you're giving gratitude and you're being thankful for the good things that you have going on, you don't really have time to worry about how <laughs> there's a list of things that aren't so great. And yeah. as you're doing that, you know, the, the universe and depend, you know, however people want to phrase it for what, how they feel and what they believe, you know, it brings more of that into your world, the law of attraction and, and all that other great stuff that everybody talks about. But it's well, true. I believe so, it. Yeah. So that's, that's, that, that is a good reminder to, for today, especially now. Yeah, but well, I'm a huge work. believer in the whole self-help movement because, I mean, I will freely confess I'm, I'm a self-help addict. From childhood reading How to Win Friends and Influence People right up to today, I'm always grasping for great ideas that you can get from people who've been there before. I mean, I love well, the idea that I can benefit from the wisdom of all sorts of brilliant people who are out there helping. Well, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, if somebody's already gone through and they've got great advice, and instead of having to try to relearn something or go through mistakes for years, you know, if you could read a book and <laughs> knock off, <laughs> you, you could do it in, you know, two weeks instead of having to go through five years of trying to figure out something on your own, why not, you know, take well, advantage I, I of, of that, you know, and like you, you know, people are going to get some information out of this show because of your life experiences that are going to maybe shave off some mistakes or time for them to, to try to figure out something on their own, or, you know, maybe some sort of insight that they gained and they go in a different direction where they got to where they wanted to be faster. So, you know, listening to people that have something of value, that quality content, which is what the show and platform's all about, is essential. So the people there, well, I like you, build, they're there. Allow me to build on, on what you've just been saying. And that is a quote from my late father. Father was what I call an informivore. He was you know, like a carnivore eats meat, an informivore just devours information. And he used to say, one good idea can change your life. And so he was always like reading books or attending conferences or lectures or meeting people. So I guess I could almost say that he was into self-help in his own way. And then something else, and this is from my late husband. You were just talking about encouraging people and that you never know how much good it does or doesn't do. But Frank used to say, if you want to be happy, Think what you can do for somebody else. If you want to be miserable, think what's owed to you. And encouraging somebody else, I think it makes you happy. I mean, it's just a good thing to do. So it, it enriches you to, to help somebody else. Well, it makes you feel good, too. It's because yeah. you, 
you put a smile on somebody else's face or it changes the dynamic of a conversation and you know you're you're spreading you're spreading cheer <laughs> throughout the world any of that is a good emotion and like attracts like right so then as you're doing that it changes the frequency it changes the the level that you're personally on and that person and say it goes and it vibrates and it's contagious. So you can either be contagious for good or you could be contagious for bad because once you go, you say something negative, then all of a sudden the other negative people are around you and everybody starts chiming in. And next thing you know, uh, you've got a whole mess on your hands and everybody's angry. So I'd rather not be around angry people rather be around happier people. Like, Who's the person that says you are most like the five people you surround yourself the most? Something along those wow. lines, right? I'm, I'm kind wow. of butchering that that phrase, but still, it's it's similar. So you want to be around, you want to encourage other people to be happy and remind them or encourage them. So we got more positive people, or you know, you want to be in the be in the angry world. I don't want to be in the angry world. To go on Twitter for that. Actually, <laughs> I, I I make a deliberate conscious effort to keep my distance from the the seriously negative people. I mean, if they're negative because they've got some advice that will benefit me, oh, I'll gobble it up. But so often being critical is really a mask for being manipulative or for making them feel superior to you. And I'm not into being a victim and I'm not into being manipulated. So I do my absolute utter best not to engage. You said that very perfectly because most of the time when somebody is in that negative world, they're not coming up with solutions. You know, that's the part that drives me nuts about politicians and a lot of people that are on TV. They're always, no, 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 I hate, I hate, but yet there's no, there's no solution. There's no plan and, or they're, they're over-exaggerating something. And so it's, there's something um, that bothers me about somebody who's virtue signaling because it's so self-congratulatory without having earned it. I mean, somebody who goes out and really helps, oh, God bless. But the person who just complains and is angry because they're morally superior to you, I've got no use for them. Yeah, because they have no solution. They have no plan. They have not, they've not thought it through. So if you're, you know, if, if you don't like something, well, then what are you going to do to change it and go ahead and implement that? The way that you said it was brilliant. I think it was eloquent, but yet very appropriate. I appreciate that being a, a quote that we are going to go ahead and, and use in, in multiple formats because it's a great way to express even how things are now in the world, but in a very, very appropriate way to get somebody's point across with, with also being authentic and, and truthful. So that was very well said, young lady. Oh, gosh, so thank you. And I'm, I'm glad that you have it recorded because I don't think I could reproduce it. <laughs> well, I started to write it down and I'm like, wait a second, I've got to record it. I don't have to, I don't have to write it down. <laughs> so we're, we talked about grapes. We talked about the family business. We've covered all of that. I know that you've got a new book, How to Be Up in Down Times, which you co-authored with Mark Victor Hansen. You know, your timing always seems to be spot on for what's going on in current events. And you've been, <laughs> you've done that through your whole life. You were ahead of the curve on the computers when that was just something that people weren't, didn't even necessarily know about. I mean, your, your information, your story today about the agriculture and the land, uh, I was just shaking my head going, there she goes again. Because, it's, oh. but, but you're talking California, you're talking land, you're talking agriculture. And especially back then, compared to even when things started to go up in value, you were there in the 70s before the 80s where things really started to get rocking and rolling. Exactly. Um, so you were, you, you really were always ahead of the curve in multiple different industries. So, you know, that insight is pretty amazing. I mean, maybe it's part of it was an inherited or part of it was just you were connected to what you were supposed to be doing. But I think it's, it's incredibly impressive. So, you know, go fast forward. Well, now was, we're in, <laughs> you were in April of 2020 and you and Mark Victor Hansen come out with this book, How to Be Up in Downtimes, which you said you wrote in what, month or two in February 
not necessarily, I mean, who knew where we would be right now because you guys started writing it. I, or did you I know? To, I mean, are you psychic? Is that what, what it is? Do you, do you got somebody that gives you the lottery numbers too? Missy, what's going on? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll give you the background of the book, How to Be Up and Down Times. And that is, I have friends in China. How about dozens of them whom I correspond with? And I visited China 12, 12 different years. I've, I've traveled there each year. But that meant that I had... How about advanced early warning that something really terrible was coming out of Wuhan? And, you know, I'd hear stories where nobody in the American press was picking it up. Stories of, of tens of millions of people being locked in their homes. And, you know, to me, it's an unending source of mystery how I could know this and the Western press didn't. But nevertheless, if there's a pandemic, I didn't expect that be able to keep it in China, that it would escape. And I'm thinking this towards the end of, I think I started tuning into it January 23rd. And yeah, within about 10 days, I'm thinking, we know a lot about past pandemics. And during pandemic times, the amount of suffering, not just economic, but how about mentally and spiritually, is just unfathomable. I mean, people get PTSD because of it. The amount of the stress of worrying if a loved one is going to make it or if you're going to get it, if your income is going to disappear or if something you've, uh, maybe a business you've worked for a lifetime, you don't have customers that, I mean, pandemics, we, we know today what I was kind of guessing back in January. Well, I'm friendly with Mark Victor Hansen. And I said, I, I don't want to take more credit than his mind, but I mentioned to him that you know, he has, with his half a billion books of self-help that, that he's created or that have been sold, and with his just crazy brilliant insight into human nature and, and what it takes to be up, and in my case, something that we haven't mentioned, but I'm a health writer and I'm a science writer. For 40 years, I've been writing a column for Scripps Howard. It went to 420 newspapers, and I would interview scientists and medical people and so I have 40 years worth of experience. And I suggested to Mark, what if together we wrote a book and we wrote it rapidly and that it would come out, you know, in a matter of weeks. And he liked the idea and the book. I think we wrote it in about three weeks and published it. It's, it's 100 pages long, but it's 40 useful tips, things that you can take action on or that are just really going to help you. And I would love to share one if, if, if we have the time. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. I have talked, how about with hundreds of people during the lockdown? Well, we're still in the pandemic. I mean, I expect it to go on for quite a while longer. I mean, it's just going to be with us. That stress. I have talked with many, many people who are worried that they're losing their minds, that Alzheimer's is about to begin, because they can't remember a name or a fact that normally would just be, it's the sort of thing where, like there was a woman that I was on a conference call with, she's a CPA, and there was the easiest math problem in the world for her. It was to figure out if masks come in bunches of 50 and you need a million of them, how many do you, how many do you order? Well, you know, in theory, that's the easiest. If you're a CPA and used to dealing with numbers, nothing could be easier than that. But she said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I can't do the calculation. I need to write it out. And, you know, and here she's worrying about Alzheimer's. But there's very, 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 very good news for everybody who's worrying if your memory just isn't as sharp as it normally is. The odds are just extraordinary that there's an easy explanation and that you're, you're not beginning with Alzheimer's. An easy explanation is, and I've written stories about this and interviewed world experts on it, when you're under stress and the pandemic just almost by definition is stress. I mean, you're worried about your loved ones. You're worried about your finances. You're worried about you're arguing with your, the person you're living with. There's so many things that cause stress that your brain gets flooded with the stress hormones, for example, cortisol or adrenaline. And 
these are scientifically known to kind of rheostat down the higher brain functions. And as the higher brain functions get rheostatted down, you're not able to like remember something or do a calculation. And it's not that you've lost that ability forever. It will come back when, I mean, in almost every case that I can imagine, it will come back when the stress levels go down. So one of the tips from how to be up and down times is to recognize and cut yourself a whole lot of slack when your memory or your higher mental functions just aren't as sharp as they normally would be. Okay, that's a tip. But right on the heels of that tip is another one. And this again comes from my career as a science writer and as a health writer. What can you do for yourself to to deal with stress that's kind of unremitting because in the past like 10,000 years ago if you were running across the savanna being chased by a lion your stress levels are really high but then you know you escape the lion and they go right back to normal but in in a pandemic situation the stress levels stay high so kind of tip number two that I would equally share with absolutely everybody is you will prolong your life and refresh your brain if you make it a complete priority every single day to give yourself respite, times when you're not thinking of the problems that are weighing down on you. And by the way, I don't want to minimize that the problems are real and extraordinary. I mean, I'm thinking of a woman who has three children and all three of them had COVID-19. I mean, that's stress. But still, if you want to preserve your health to the best that you can, take an hour off doing something that gets your mind off of it. And, you know, I totally recommend old movies, even ones that you're familiar with, that, that you love and that you can lose yourself in. Or maybe maybe you, you watch YouTube, and I particularly watch love to watch animal videos, like of, of rescues of sea animals or, or elephants, baby elephants who are being rescued by, by game wardens or... Yeah, there's just a hundred things. Or maybe it's visiting a virtual museum. There there are a hundred, how about there are 20,000 ways that you can indulge yourself in just, I could call it escapism, but I'm going to call it respite from the pressures that are crowding in on you to yourself. And by the way, there are other ways, like maybe it's sewing, maybe it's knitting, maybe it's exercise, but do something every single day to give yourself respite. And so what's the science behind this? I know of one person very, very well. She's my niece, and she runs a nursing home. And good Lord, can you imagine the stress that she's under? Mm, because, yeah. well, she's in Massachusetts, and it was required that COVID patients be admitted to her, the, to her nursing home. The dumbest home. thing. Dumbest thing. I, it, it's almost like you could be a five-year-old kid and know that's a bad idea. You know what I mean? That exactly. Was and she's, she's the most conscientious person in the world. And you know, she had done everything humanly possible to keep COVID out. And now she had to accept COVID patients, or I suppose go to jail or something. I don't Yeah, I wouldn't went to jail. But, That's just stupid. It's like the chicken pox. And you had kids, so you know that when one kid got chicken pox and it hadn't hit the neighborhood yet, basically what you did was you said, okay, we brought home chicken pox. Who's coming over? And you would take all the kids, put them in the house for a little while. They'd play. And you're like, good. Everyone's now got chicken pox and we could get it out of the system. It's over. It's the same thing. So there isn't anybody on the planet who doesn't know the chickenpox theory, which is exactly yeah. the same thing with the corona. So that it was just except, except in the case of the elderly, it means deaths because well, exactly. by the time you're exactly. in a nursing it's home, similar. yeah, yeah, it's, it's similar. But you've got comorbidities. Well, she told me. I tell that background just to say that that she knows what she's talking about. But I have other sources that say the same thing. That caregivers. Of, of seriously ill people, like people with dementia or Parkinson's, that they are, a third of them will not out, will die before the people they're taking care of because the stress levels are so high. So she says oh. the most important thing for caregivers or just for humanity is to give yourself respite, to give your systems, your your internal systems, a chance to kind of recover even a little bit. She says it's almost a matter of life and death. You must do this. And so, again, a, a tip that I give in the book is it's not self-indulgent to 
to practice escapism, it's life-saving. So every single day, if the stress is great, somehow carve out an hour of doing something that leaves the stress behind, that allows you just to escape it for an hour. It's a healthy, good thing to do. And that's it's a wonderful reminder because we, I think as you're going through, and I know I do this all the time, as you're going through issues, you think that you're trying to solve them or you're worrying about them and you're not thinking, oh, well, maybe I should go do some other activity because you're thinking, well, if I go do something else, then I'm not spending time, whether it's trying to get new business, trying to solve the problem, whatever it is, I need to be at my desk. I need to be doing this and taking that extra hour to find that respite that you're talking about to get your mind off of it can make all the difference in the world because, you know, it's about immune systems and it's about being healthier so you can feel better. And, you know, just look at when people say they're under a lot of stress and you haven't seen them for a while and then you see them, you're like, Ooh, somebody looked like they put on a couple of years and it is, yep. we forget. And it, it is the stress, the, the immune system, the, the aging, the, the getting sick, not necessarily for COVID, but for anything else. I mean, it, it's all connected. And we, we then you've got other things that could transpire. So, yeah, don't feel guilty of taking a time out. It's necessary. I mean, we're human beings. We're what, organic. We are, we're living, breathing entities that you've got to take care of yourself. You know, yeah, good food, I, I, exercise. But the stress is huge. And I'm, I'm glad that you, you bring that up and, and also that there's some solutions in the book because most people think of that as the last item on their list. And, and I'm encouraging them to put it way high up because you can't solve the other problems if you're, if you're degrading your ability to cope and stress degrades your ability to cope. Exactly. But on the other hand, respite helps you get back on center and it's not going to solve everything, but it can sure make it better. Well, and you said then you could think with a clear head. Well, now, as you, you were given the example in the beginning, well, now that person might be able to remember the things that they had forgotten. So that stress level of them thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to I'm I'm uh, the beginnings of Alzheimer's and, and dementia. That whole that that cycle is now broken. Yeah, but, so they're like, oh, good. Yeah. I'm back to normal. I haven't lost my mind. So then all of a sudden the stress level goes down. So, see, it's all connected into a cluster of just your mind literally can make a mess of things when there might not necessarily be a mess to be made too. So we can really go deep in our own head. And we talked about that in the first part of this, of this interview that the, you know, repositioning your thinking makes all the difference in the world where the results can almost be instant. So yeah, it's a good point. How about another tip that you've got in the book that you think is critical for people and they could use right away? Okay, another one, a lot of people probably discovered this all on their own, but I'm in favor of completely putting on hold every single political disagreement. And here's why. And there's a Nobel Prize winner who discovered this, and I admire him. His name's Daniel Kahneman. But the reason not to have political discussions is you'll never or virtually never persuade anybody with arguments to change their views because people are so busy like defending their own self-image, their own identity, that if you attack, even with the best arguments in the world, a different political view, you're almost certainly not going to get through to them because they will be able, in order to avoid cognitive dissonance or the discomfort that you feel when there's an idea that doesn't agree with your worldview, they won't listen to it, they'll dismiss it, they'll feel angry. So. The overall lesson, according to Daniel Kahneman, the odds of somebody changing a political view because of an argument are effectively zero. So there's no point. And so the advice that I would give absolutely everybody, maybe not just now, but in general, is focus on what unites us, not what divides us. And that formula, I mean, it took, I personally witnessed it, not in the political field, but I'm going to give an example from American Agriwomen. In agriculture, there's often things where different parts of agriculture, you know, economically, they could be almost each other's throats because, you know, what benefits one might not benefit the other. If you try to hash those out, and I'll give a concrete example. In California, at least in 
in the 1970s, 1980s, there was huge arguments over whether water from the wet north would be transferred to the dry south, Los Angeles area, for example. And you, you can hardly believe how bitter the feelings on this were because you take Northern California's water and Southern California had the votes. You could cause you know, phenomenal economic damage to the North. But the South, its position was, you know, we need the water. We're human beings. Why does a crop outweigh a human being? So you know, the arguments were just quite hot. I think that California Women for Agriculture could have torn itself into shreds if we'd focused on what divided us. Instead, the whole organization adopted a rule, we will focus on what unites us and not what divides us. And as we focus on what unites us, we can move forward and we can accomplish amazing, great things, but we focus on what divides us. There's no way that words are gonna convince one side or the other, so it's wasted breath. And I feel that way about political arguments today. You know, to the amount that we focus on what divides us, we're stymied and we waste our energy to the amount that we can focus on what unites us. We can move forward joyously. And I, I can't give a prescription for the whole country, but I can make a recommendation for people, say in a family, who disagree. Just don't even bring up the political things because you're wasting your breath. You're not going to convince the other side. You're just not. Instead, focus on the thing that unite you as a family or unite you and your partner or your roommate or the people that, that you're spending time with. Focus on what unites us and not what divides us. Yeah, because it's wasted energy. You're just going to go around in circles and then most likely, like you said, there's going to be an argument and then that always leads to something else coming up or <laughs> something that yeah, made them mad right. at you from 30 years ago pops up and you're like, oh my God, I thought we were done with that. And then all of a sudden you've got a whole nother problem to deal with because it's just, you know what I mean? It's just, it's like a volcano erupting. It's just, what do they say when you go to when you're meeting people or you go to parties, never talk about politics or religion because you're, it's just it's just a black hole. There's no winner. There's just bad things come of it, unless obviously you're you're on the same page. But but if you're not on the same page, and you say something that isn't in harmony what with what the other person is thinking, it's unfortunately extremely normal for them to defend their identity because you're attacking their identity to dislike you and to, you know, it has, it, well, I'm going to go with the black hole that you described. Just everything else that's going wrong in their life, they're going to take out on you. So it's just, it's not a winning position to take. But on the other hand, focusing on what unites us and not what divides us is a winning position. So focusing on what uniting us, I think this is a great segue to get into the final chapter of what we're going to talk about today which is your foundation, Win This Fight, WTF. And uh, I, will, <laughs> I like that you chose WTF. And By the way, it's if all you think that's an accident, <laughs> <laughs> it's not. <laughs> well, the, the whole purpose of this organization is to stop human trafficking. And you would think that this should be something on the forefront of most people's minds that you you can't even believe that this happens, but it's really not talked about a lot. And that's just crazy to think something so, I don't want to say violent, but that's one of the words. Just Let's go with something vile. so, yeah, something so insane is probably right now at the highest point of the amount of people, and you're going to give us all of those details, that this is going on in 2020. And you're just going, wait a minute, this is, ins this is insane. I know somebody's would, doing something. Yeah, it's so little talk about that I could make a bet that even some of our listeners might not have heard of the issue. And the reason I'm going to make that bet is because just a little over a year ago, I barely heard of it. But human trafficking, it's another word for it is human slavery. According to the United Nations, there are 40 million people in slavery. 
And to try to grasp that number, think of the state of California. Its population is 40 million. So it's as if every person in California numerically was enslaved. And slavery, you know, the brutality of slavery today, a woman who's being sex trafficked, she's perfectly likely to have started at age 11. Her life expectancy is seven years. What's going to end her life is suicide, drug overdose, or murder. You know, there's slave markets in Libya today. The cruelty, the, the inhumanity of it, the atrocity of it. I mean, imagine, think of an 11-year-old girl that you're aware of. And by the way, this happens to men as well, but let's focus on women for the moment. An 11-year-old girl, she may be forced to have sex with strangers eight or ten times a night. And that's 365 days a year. And you know, she'll get almost no medical care. The reason I'm devoting the rest of my life to trying to do something about this awful situation is because I don't think that greater evil exists than one person enslaving another. But it goes on here. I mean, it's not just 40 million people in all these other countries that we would think are not maybe quite as advanced, and they're only in third world countries. This goes on here in the United States. You Actually, want to talk about that a little bit? So it hits home to people where they're like, wait a minute, it's, it's, it might even be in my own city. Oh, it certainly is in your own city. I have heard, but I'm, I'm, I'm not certain it's true, but that New York is the sex trafficking capital of the world. I've also heard that, that possibly Los Angeles might be. But the reason why the United States is, you know, how about top of the list, and New York or Los Angeles or whichever is the sex capital trafficking capital of the world, is because sex trafficking goes where the money is. Mm-hmm. And you can make an awful lot more money in fact, I, I was talking with a, a member of the New York Police Department who was saying that if you're a trafficker and you've got a stable of, I think he said five women, and stable is the word I, I heard him use, you can have a million dollars a year of income tax-free. So, you know, the temptations to do, oh, and that your odds of being caught are just minuscule because you have ways of keeping the women who are whom you're prostituting, you have ways of keeping them quiet and scared to talk to the police. So, you know, I've also heard estimates, and you know, I can't swear that they're true, but, but the estimates are out there, that if you're a trafficker, your odds of getting caught and paying any kind of penalty at all are less than one out of 100. Well, let's put it this way. I want to shed a little bit of, I don't know, necessarily my personal feelings, but some, some reality. If there's anything that's going on in this country, especially a city like New York, if they wanted to stop it or find out about it, they could. Okay? And you and I both know that. I think everybody listening knows that. We're advanced enough in, in, in our efforts of being undercover, FBI, the police, so, you know, name a three-letter organization. If they wanted to do something about it, they could. They, they choose not to. So that needs to just okay, be said, I, I like and it take, needs to be discussed because at the end of the day, it's not that difficult to figure out where it is, what's going on, and to put an end to it. So the, the, the actually, people that have the ability choose not to do anything. So Well, uh, you put your finger on one of the minor contributions that I'd like to make in this effort, and that is I'm not going to look down on the police departments because the, the people that I know who work there, I mean, they'd give anything to end this horror. But no, it's the food the chain. Up the food chain. Let me repeat what I've heard. That if, if the city doesn't know about the issue because it's kept quiet, they're not going to, they're not going to support budget increases that would enable the police to devote the resources to it. So if the police had more resources, you know, right now, I think they're stretched. Well, right now, right now, I don't even want to guess what's going on. But at least historically, the police departments, you know, they're they're just covered up with how about murders and robberies and arsons and, you know, the the things that are visible and that people will vote the funding for. But they're not going to devote large amounts of money to doing something about sex trafficking if, if it's not 
something that the public knows about. I, I have heard police officials say that almost their biggest obstacle is that people don't know about it. That if, pe- if more people knew about it, then devote the resources to attacking the problem. I think that they're, you know, without going down different channels and different avenues of theories and, you know, some people might say conspiracy theories and thing, I, I think there's more to it than that. They're just, it's a oh, very way, lucrative I, business. There's a lucrative it, it business. It certainly is. Let, but that's a, we let, could do a whole other show on it. We we could do a whole okay. other show, and I think we should. I think we should down down the road here is really kind of just bring it to the forefront, and we could de- really de- devote some more time to it, and and kind of get the ball rolling to get more exposure for the organization, but also the fact that of uh, a lot of the problems we have, this is probably one that can be resolved if, as low hanging fruit. There, if the will is there, I think it would end, but mm-hmm. the people have to call for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. But, but uh, so then we'll, I also want to allow me to back up because I was yeah. I was giving you information that I had from talking actually with how about dozens of police because I I focused on one person I talked with but I've heard the same story over and over again but I don't want to minimize the fact that the the people uh, the bad guys who are making a million dollars a year how about a fair amount of that money goes to bribing politicians oh totally totally yeah. So, so I'm absolutely going to agree with you that farther up the food chain, there are people who are turning a blind eye. But I still think that if the world just was revulsed at this horrible monstrosity, that a politician wouldn't keep his or her job unless they did something about it. And that's a good point. That's a good point. So there's potential there to really get some some progress and movement, which which is why you started the organization. Because obviously, if you talk to enough people and found out a big problem is most people don't know about it or how bad it really is, then you can't create interest or support to change it at the level that it needs to be changed. We'll put all of this information on our platform, which is everythinghometalkshow.com. But is there one that you want to mention that people could go to for some information if they just want to start figuring out what the organization and the whole trafficking is, sexual and human trafficking is all about? Okay, there is a website. It's called winthisfight.org. But in a way, I'd prefer that they communicate with me directly. If they'll go to mitsipurdue.com, I'm better set up there with the contact form to respond to people. Oh, perfect. Perfect. So first choice, winthisfight.org is, is our website, and it's got loads of information. But since I, want to, I would love to connect with listeners, mitsipurdue.com. And we're, like I said, we're going to have all that information on our website since Missy now is part of our family. She's part of our platform. She is one of the members of the Everything Home Socially Conscious Referral Network and Marketplace. All of her information is always on our website. And as far as her book, which is How to Be Up in Down Times, because she's also part of our Marketplace platform, if you go to the Marketplace tab and you get one of her books through our link, 2% of the total purchase price is being donated to her organization. She's part of our platform. So there's multiple different organizations that are supporting vets, pets, and kids. Her organization is one of those. So we pull it all together and then distribute the the proceeds every quarter. So it's an opportunity for people to go in and buy products from well-known brands that they normally would go to online. This way, as long as they go through our link, a donation is created. No money out for a donation from your own pocket. You're getting the same price that you would or sometimes even lower than going direct to the website. And organizations like Mitzi's are able to create revenue to go solve the problems. If you're interested in the book or any book from any author, go to that tab. And like I said, 2% of the purchase price will go into support the nonprofit organizations. It's such a genius idea to enable people to support things, to make it easy for them. But they can do it without sacrifice. I love it, love it, love it. It's about like-minded people all coming together. And if you can come up with 
ways that people could support each other. And ideally, if you don't have to write a check, it makes a lot easier for people to support things when they don't have to, (laughs) they don't have to write a check, right? (laughs) Right. If things are going for good and you're helping and blah, blah, blah. And the next thing you know, it's like the compound interest. You start with two, then you got four, then you got 16 and then it all works out. And if we can make a difference in the world and make it a better place, solve some problems, that's what we're trying to do. Whether it is through the donation or just somebody getting great information on the show today from you or even in the first episode, maybe it makes them laugh or maybe it makes them change something in their life or maybe it creates something so that they make more money in their business. Whatever it takes in order to make something better for somebody. You know, it's all about more personal freedom, more financial freedom, more professional freedom. And when you have that, there's, there's no stopping you. You know, and it's to what you want to do and really fulfilling your purpose. I mean, you said you are going to devote the rest of your life to this. And that's, we want people to be able to find something that they're that passionate about and become that purpose driven to go find what their purpose is here on planet Earth. I mean, we're all here for a reason. So we just got to figure out what that is. My suggestion is implement it into your business world too. So then it really becomes a big part of your life. And Mitzi, you're doing it. You've been doing it for... 60, 70 years. Yeah. An incredible story. We're going to have you back on. We're going to talk about the organization in the future when things settle down where people can focus on it. Because right now I know they've got full plates. Is there anything else that you want to say, contribute, last parting words of advice? I mean, you're not leaving us permanently, but I will let you say whatever you feel that you need to say. Okay. My final thought is I love being associated with what you're doing because it just it's just a genius approach to solving problems. So thank you for including me. I love it. I'm honored to be part of it. Well, thank you. It's good people like you that allow this platform to exist. I mean, it's all about good people doing good business and good things. It's a podcast because you need to have the message out there so people can get their message out. But the patriotic purpose-driven resource platform is really the big picture. And that's where we get to showcase these wonderful people and these organizations and the messaging and the products and the services and even resources that you don't have to pay for. I won't go into it in detail, but it's our whole Reopen America Resource Center. There's so much information on there, whether it's personal or professional. I mean, I as I was putting this together, I learned so much. I'm like, God, this is a great site. This is great information. I said, I have to put it all in one place because No one should have to go through the amount of days and weeks that I was just trying to find a resource or a tool or a a webinar or a live stream, all that. Now it's all in one place. That's the whole point. Put all the good stuff in one place. Thank you so much for supporting us, Mitzi, being a part of this. I look forward to having you come back on. And you could go to MitziPurdue.com, correct? Correct. And the one important thing is Purdue is spelled like chicken, not like the university. So it's P-E-R-D-U-E, Mitzi, P-E-R-D-U-E.com. All of her information will always be on our website, which is everythinghometalkshow.com. So even if you forget, you can always go there. She always has a home and she's going to be in multiple places too. She's either in her category or she's under, she's under the tab for the famous and well-known people. <laughs> she's oh, one of those yes. famous and well-knowns, but yes. Oh, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> well, Missy, again, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been wonderful. And I look forward to you coming back on. The stories are amazing. You're an incredible woman. Oh, thank you so much. It takes one to know one. <laughs> You're definitely coming back on now. oh man you have a wonderful day my friend i appreciate you so much and are you did you know 63 percent of consumers prefer to buy from purpose-driven brands and businesses that reflect their own values beliefs and support charitable causes Promos for a Purpose provides business owners with ways to support worthy causes and promote their brands at the same time with its comprehensive done-for-you marketing and media program. Visit www.promosforapurpose.com for more information. Promosforapurpose.com You've been listening to Everything Home with Michelle Swinnick. Life. 
laughter, and the pursuit of happiness. To meet, learn from, and hire the experts and the guests, professionals, and members of the Everything Home Socially Conscious Referral Network and Marketplace, visit everythinghometalkshow.com slash episodes. And to listen, subscribe, rate, review, like, follow, comment, and share, go to www.everythinghometalkshow.com and find us on all the major listening platforms. Thanks for listening. We hope you were entertained, and we hope that you picked up some real-life, tangible takeaways from some good people doing good business and good things. Till next time, this is Everything Home, signing off. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.